So protests are happening in Iran right now, and they're happening very aggressively. And women are leading these protests over the death of a 22-year-old because of violation of the hijab law that uh, forces women to wear headscarves when out in public. Our guest is an Iranian-American author, and she's spoken out about what she sees on the ground in Iran a bunch of different times. We wanted to get her on our show. She agreed. Hoda Katebi joins me for a chat on whether or not this is going to continue to escalate and whether or not this protest could enact actual tangible change in a country that has kind of been one way since the Iranian revolution in the late 70s. That's right now on Toronto Today. Okay, um, I grew up and the Iranian hostage uh, issue was on the news every night. It was one of the first news stories I really remember, sitting there watching with my parents, uh, the Shah of Iran, corrupt as he was, Iranians wanted him out, so the United States gave him exile. And that didn't sit well with the Iranian people, thus the hostages, thus the rise of the Ayatollah, and thus the uh, rise of a lot more of a um, religious-based Islamic fundamentalism. And Iranian women are out and about demanding freedom right now. And uh, some of the background of this is a 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian uh, who died on September 16th. She was arrested for wearing her hijab improperly. And apparently was beaten to death. So this has created mass protests. You can't go anywhere and watch any newscast without seeing it. Joining us on the line to discuss uh, is uh, Hoda Katebi. And we'll explain why we're having Hoda on. But we're really pleased that she is. What are you seeing in the coverage where you go? Um, How is this being framed? Is this being framed the right way by some, the wrong way by others? How do you view it? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I, I agree that it's always great to like look back um, and try to learn from, you know, what happened in the past. How can we do better? Um, and I I think that there are, are a lot of things. <laughs> I think that it's a very complicated situation as always. But I think at the end of the day, um, there are a lot of really important things to recognize. And I think first and foremost is that um, Iranian women, um, particularly Iranian women on the ground in Iran, their voices should be centered. Their voices um, should be the ones that are really leading how we think about and frame um, what we're understanding here on the other side of the world. So I think that I always see so many self-proclaimed Iran experts pop up overnight, mm-hmm. half of which uh, of whom don't even speak Farsi, have never been to Iran, um, but I think have their own political agendas that just get you know space because they have Twitter followers. So I think it's really important that um, we are very careful about who we're um, really giving the mic to and uplifting um, and what their goals and intentions are, I think is really important. I think beyond that, um, I think the, a lot of what I've been seeing has also sort of been really limiting these conversations as um, sort of women in Iran fighting against the hijab. And to that, uh, I'd want to say, you know, really two things. Like one, um, this is so much bigger than the hijab. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, the main chant that we see women chanting on the streets is women, life, freedom, Um, really connecting women's rights to economic justice, to social, um, social political justice, like understanding that women's rights in Iran and the struggles that women are fighting against um, is really more than just hijab. Hijab has sparked it. um, Mandatory dress code has sparked it. But it is so much more than that. And being able to connect this to something that's so much broader um, and that affects women's rights on on a very holistic level, I think is really important. And on the second part of that is that this is not about 
um, banning the hijab. This is about the right to choice. And right. I think that I'm also seeing this sort of opportunity being used by a lot of people in the West to kind of use this as an assault on Islam, that this is um, this is what happens. You know, um, this is Muslim women are rising against um, like Islam when that's not at all what's happening. Um, they're fighting against a systemic issue, something that's affecting really the country at its core. Um, but just like any country being able to use whatever it has at its disposal, the Iranian government is using things and co-opting and weaponizing religion against its people. So mm -hmm. Muslims um, and non-Muslim women, women who wear the hijab, women who are not wearing it, women who are burning it are all standing alongside each other just for the right of women's total liberation. And that's connected on a systemic level. Does this feel to you like this is a young person's um, protest that younger people are feeling more hopeless than their fathers and mothers were and, and even maybe frustrated that their fathers and mothers 25, 30 years ago didn't rise up and say similar things? Does this, does this feel like a generation based protest to you? Um, I, I think yes and no. I, I This is not um, the first time Iranians have risen or stood up, and this is not the first time that women are really leading the movement in Iran. Um, we've seen um, protests across Iran really take place uh, throughout the decades before and after the revolution, um, many of which were led by women, many are led by working class people. And so this is, this is a, a really beautiful moment, and I think what's very different about this moment is that it's really centering um, and connecting women's liberation at the forefront of um, justice and saying that there should not be a gender delay on progress. Um, and when we're fighting for systemic justice, this means um, and centering women's rights, this means that this actually it, like touches everything. Um, and I think that young people are at the forefront of this, as we're seeing in Iran. And I think that that comes from, as you were mentioning, just, I think, deep hopelessness. But I think this moment is actually creating so much optimism, so much excitement, um, and also just moments to be able to experience, um, you know, the freedom of being able to organize together, create spaces to talk about politics, discuss things, mm -hmm. um, and, and practice the world that they want to see. And so I, I think that there is an opening in this moment that I, I do see an intergenerational sort of approach. Um, I do see that this is maybe being led by women and led by young people, but that the calls for women, life and freedom are so broad and encompassing that workers are on the streets, students are on the streets. Um, you know, Mahsa or Gina Amini, the woman who was killed by the Gesher Shara, the morality police that sparked all of this is Kurdish. Um, so there's also, you know, a, a conversation around um, the treatment of ethnic minorities in Iran. And so all of these are sort of coming together at this at the same time. So I, I do think that it, it is broader than young people and, and very intersectional, although I do believe that they're at the forefront. Because it strikes me as well when we started talking about the the revolution and the uh, the exiling of of the Shah and the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini, that was that was younger people leading that. Um, for better mm -hmm. or worse, they, they said, we think the Shah is corrupt. We don't want, you know, we want something different. And they would say that in the late 70s. But to me, it wasn't it wasn't 55 and 60 year old people out in the street, um, you know, burning the U.S. flag in effigy. It was younger people, wasn't it? Right. Right. Absolutely. And um, I think that's the, that's the beauty of this moment is that people are demanding freedom and rights. And I mm -hmm. think that whenever people were also at the start of the revolution, 
um, calling out the corruption of the Shah and the Shah was corrupt. You know, yes. women's bodies were also um, weaponized. There were also a lack of fundamental human rights. There was also marginalization of ethnic minorities. Um, there was also huge issues for workers. And so I think that a lot of the like people seeing and living in those circumstances gave rise to a momentous moment that was a revolution that now a lot of those goals and ideas of like freedom of, for all people and sort of an egalitarian movement um, was again quickly co-opted and whatever was quick the fastest at their disposal of those who gained power was now being weaponized to create yet another repressive regime. So I think it's a lot of these calls for freedom again are not new in Iran and they were at the same time of overthrowing um, a US-backed um, king in Iran and now are also demanding again um, a new chance for freedom and a new chance to build a new Iran that is actually inclusive of ethnic minorities, religious minorities, women, um, queer people, everything um, that I think Iranians are fighting for just to make the, the society more open and free for everybody. Hoda Kitabi is kind of to join us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. So does this one feel different? Does it feel like it can last longer, have more? I mean, you and I are talking about it right now. Do, do, can it have more legs? Can we still be talking about it in a month? Can, can even some of the government's hardcore supporters soften and say um this the, the you know the violence the intimidation we need to change this it's not the identity we we wanted in the first place <laughs> that's a hard question mm-hmm. i i don't think i i would ever have the audacity <laughs> to assume where a protest would go um i i i like to be an optimist i like to be very realistic and optimistic i think that um i'm I'm excited to see where this goes. I know that a lot of people are nervous and rightfully so because the United States, um, Canada, the United Kingdom, France, a lot of these Western countries have a history of um, staging coups, um, intervening in countries' domestic affairs for their own benefit. Um, Israel, for example, and Saudi Arabia are also two countries very close to Iran that are watching, and I have no doubt that they're also going to be taking advantage of this opportunity. So I I do think that Mm -hmm. there's um, a lot of um, fear and, and anxiety that a lot of people have watching what's happening in Iran. And yet at the same time, I do believe in in young people and I do believe in their vision and I do believe in supporting them um, wherever I can. And however, we should all are, have the opportunity to, um, whether that's fighting against sanctions um, in our own countries that are worsening the economic situation in Iran or being able to stand up in solidarity, connecting the issues in Iran and understanding the global connectedness of patriarchy um, and state violence against um, indigenous women or black women or you know queer women or trans women and, and yeah. recognizing the interlinks of this. So I, I would love to, you know, um, I, I feel like always hopeful and inspired by these moments. And even if uh, sort of the, the tangible demands don't manifest exactly as, uh, you know, the, the protesters are demanding, I don't think that necessarily would mean that it would be unsuccessful. Many men are now joining these protests. They were framed properly so as as protests for women. Men are joining now. It's really tough to um, generalize. But I, I wonder if women are where were you for years before this or or whether women say yes the more the merrier we would the more the more important i should say we we need this i would make the case that in the in the 60s uh we needed white men to wake up and go everybody should be able to vote we we needed you know straight people to say of course gay people should be able to marry like we needed we needed voices um how do how do the women of iran take men stepping in now and saying oh we're 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 with you and we're with you the whole time i mean of course we were how do they take that um yeah i mean i 
I do think that that is a sort of a, unfortunately a worldwide phenomenon of the patriarchy in which men quickly take up space. Uh, men are seen as like rightful, non-emotional leaders. Um, and I think this is something that's deeply rooted uh, globally, unfortunately, in the ways that, um, you know, women's leadership is oftentimes overshadowed or erased. Um, women's voices are not given agency. And so I I do think that it, it is important that women particularly um, and their experiences and, you know, all of our sort of um, experiences are, are uplifted and centered and um, that the mic stays firmly with women and as much as possible women on the ground in Iran to the extent their safety is not compromised. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, 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 I do think that it's unfortunately a worldwide <laughs> um, issue of, of patriarchy. Can it change? Is it, it's not, I know it's not easy to knock down walls of patriarchy in a week or a month. Oh, it must. It will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm confident it will. It will. It's tough, right? Because you it's difficult for someone, someone like me to say, well, it's getting better and it's much better than it's ever been. And at the same time, it, I know it's still not good enough. So that, so it's sort of a mixed sentence when I say that, like it's, uh, I look at it and I go, it, it's not enough for it to be better. It's meant to be equal. It's it's not enough for it to improve. It's meant to be where it's where it was supposed to be in the first place is the best way I can put it. Mm, yeah, I mean, as a, as a community organizer in the United States, um, and I I think that there's a lot of experiences that I can draw from protesting police and militarism here in the United States. And I think that it's it is challenging. And I think that there are two parts is that one, um, I, I mean, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you know, says that revolution is a rehearsal. So we can't always expect that anytime we make progress, that it's going to be this one pivotal moment that changes everything. But every time we're able to fill the streets, mm -hmm. um, protest, demand change, push even an inch, or at least change people's minds, shift the conversation, that in and of itself is a way or an opening for us to be able to practice what are the relationships that we're trying to build in the world that we want to create? How can we start imagining, you know, something better, um, and really start to actually actively start working on that. How can we start um, um, modeling what we want to see and how can we use these moments um, to practice and experience liberation and freedom, even if it's for an hour or two hours. Um, and so I, I do think that it's uh, both a practice of like shifting and laying foundations for generations to come and also being able to build what we can for ourselves here and now so that we can experience um liberation and freedom and justice and economic justice for our communities, both in the United States and Iran and Canada and around the world. Um, but I do think that it requires, you know, a lot of, a lot of time and thinking about like what, what actually is the world that we're trying to build. And I don't know how many, how many of us have had the privilege of just taking, you know, even an hour a day um, to just sit and think about what do you actually want? Like, not just how are you going to survive, but what are the relationships that you want? What does justice look like truly? Um, and how can we work together in order to build that um, for ourselves and for the future? I wish we took that one hour to 24 because there's going to be a, a million things <laughs> that when we're 85, we'll be like, why did I spend so much time on that when I wasn't doing <laughs> when I wasn't doing something <laughs> that could have been more important? Um, not family, not not, you know, not going for a walk, not staying fit, but uh, to live longer. But yeah, those those deeper, more meaningful conversations, because people that came 40, 50 years before us, they there were a lot of people that tried that and 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 did that and changed things from where they were in 1960 or 1970. And we're we're not doing a great job. Sometimes we're, we feel like we're going backwards instead of forwards with those conversations sometimes. 
but I, yeah, but I also think that there is a history that we can draw from. And I think that there's, there's so much that we can learn. And I, I think especially mm. in the United States or Canada, if we look to black history, indigenous history, we actually learn the history of these countries and we can actually learn and understand um, how to build, what are sort of models of justice that maybe we don't are able to experience here with policing mm. and incarceration, but how can we look to what our, you know, our ancestors um, drew from to have collective liberation um, and, and be able to model that. So I, I think that there's, there's value and we're standing, you know, in the legacy of, of everyone who stood before us and fought these spots. And I, I, I think mm. to take it back to Iran also, I, these protests are echoing, you know, generations of women um, and men and everybody uh, demanding autonomy over their bodies, uh, as well as women, you know, around the world who are fighting against patriarchy at the systemic level. Oh, thanks so much for the time. Um, you hit the nail on the head on so many issues, and and I think our listeners are, are really um, are really appreciative of uh, having someone on that would do so like that. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.